You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Go Wild. Go Wild is a social media platform designed for and by outdoorsmen. Go Wild is a place to connect with other outdoorsmen, find fishing and hunting tips and tactics, and you can even research and buy your gear. Join hundreds of thousands of other hunters, fishermen, and outdoorsmen and experience what this community is all about. Download it today at DownloadGoWild.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Go Hunt and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Sign up today to become an insider at GoHunt.com. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitments as popular brands like Sitka, First Light, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. Happy Thursday. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. i uh, got a good one for you today, guys. Uh, today, I'm joined by Jason Matzinger, and Jason is the owner and founder of the TV show Into High Country, which is 2% certified. Um, and for many of you out there that likely know of Jason and a lot of the work he's done, uh, we get to kind of talk about, you know, really how Jason was introduced to the outdoors growing up there in Montana, you know, born and raised and, you know, being exposed to the outdoors, the hunting lifestyle, all that uh, from very early on, you know, through, you know, his father, his grandfather, uncles. And, you know, he knew pretty early on that this was, you know, this is what he wanted to do. Uh, and then as he got older in life, uh, you know, the filming side of things uh, became something he was uh, very interested in, very passionate about. Uh, he wanted to take kind of a different approach uh, to the way that a lot of the, the current filming was being done. He wanted to really highlight, you know, the conservation side of things and really 
tell a story and not just kind of give you the um, the end result, you know, with the kill or the harvest. You know, Jason really wanted to, to tell that story and, and highlight everything that so many of us really love about, you know, the hunt itself. It's uh, we Jason and I talk about it that it's, you know, it's the journey, it's not the destination. And he does a, an amazing job of highlighting that in a lot of his films. Um, and, you know, not only his TV show, but a, a lot of the films that he's done with some of these conservation organizations to kind of tackle uh, and address some of the, uh, you know, hard, hard topics out there and try to present it uh, in a very unbiased manner to let the viewers, uh, you know, make their own decision about, you know, whatever uh, the specific topic is. Um, just this week, Jason actually re- uh, released Project Landlock, um, which he did uh, in kind of conjunction with um, Onyx, uh, RMEF, and, and tells a, a good story um, about, you know, land that is not able to be accessed because it's, you know, it's surrounded by uh, you know, private land and it's just not accessible. Um, the way that the whole project, um, really lined up was, was pretty incredible. And and Jason tells a story, uh, about how it all just kind of fell into place. Uh, and, you know, turned out to be, uh, just this incredible film. Um, so it's, uh, it's a great conversation that Jason and I have, you know, not just about the film work uh, and things like that that he's doing, but also, you know, his views on conservation and, you know, some of the important things that a lot of us can take away and, you know, maybe some things that we can do to kind of help out the bigger picture of conservation, um, especially there in the West where Jason is at. So episode 67, Jason Matzinger. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Uh, Before we get into the episode, though, I want to take a minute to tell you about our friends over at Wild Rivers Coffee. Uh, Wild Rivers Coffee, they're roasting in small batches so that they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness. Uh, Wild Rivers is also a proud member and proud partner with 2% for Conservation. They believe in preserving the wild places and wild things that bring all of us so much joy. That's why with everything they sell, a portion of the proceeds is being donated back to various conservation organizations that are near and dear to them. So organizations like Trout Unlimited, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Ducks Unlimited, and Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So go over to wildriverscoffeeco.com to order your fresh roasted beans, uh, some really cool handmade mugs that they have, and obviously some sweet merchandise. Um, I have their trout shirt, and it's uh, it's in regular uh, rotation uh, in terms of t-shirts that I like to wear. Uh, you can also subscribe today and save 10% on your order. Uh, and also, if you're if you're not going to subscribe, maybe you just want to pick up a mug or just a single bag of coffee or a t-shirt or a hat or anything like that, use the promo code, this is all caps, FISH underscore wildlife, and you're going to save 10% off your order there as well. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. All right, with me today, I have the owner and founder of 2% Certified Into High Country, Jason Matzinger. Jason, how are you? Doing good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. I uh, I know, obviously, you've got a ton going on over there, and we're just uh, getting into hunting season. I know, uh, following your Instagram stories, you were out doing some antelope hunting uh, last week, so I'm glad that we were able to, uh, to make some time to get this in before things really kind of get full-blown into the season here. Yeah, for sure. Me too. I'm glad uh, we were able to make it happen. Appreciate your patience, and um, yeah, excited to excited to do it yeah great so jason i want to kind of go all the way back to the beginning here so so tell me 
you know, what did or how was a young Jason Matzinger introduced to the outdoors? What did that look like? Uh, you know, going all the way back, really, it was just where I was born and, and my family and friends that I grew up with. You know, um, my dad was a big hunter and his friends and still is. And so that was really, you know, my first introduction into hunting was just, you know, seeing them bring home the animals and hearing the stories and watching how much fun they were having. And, you know, then getting old enough to get invited on my first hunt and, and, uh, kind of learn the ropes through them. So yeah, really it was my dad and, and his friends that set me on the path and, and I'm lucky to still be able to hunt with them today. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's great. Especially when you're, you know, almost kind of born into it, right? When it's, it, it, you don't really know any other way of life, uh, as opposed to, you know, kind of living that, that hunting, uh, the, the outdoor lifestyle. Yeah, for sure. No, it's just been a, a part of our yearly routine since I was old enough to know what that meant. And, you know, spring comes around and it's, uh, bear hunting season, turkey hunting season, looking for shed antlers. And that kind of slowly rolls into just a short little summer. And then next thing you know, it's, uh, right into archery antelope and bow hunting elk. And it just kind of rolls into, you know, hunting deer in the rut and then predators in the winter. And it's just kind of a, a year long cycle of something that's always a part of our schedule and what we're doing you know, from week to week. Yeah. And I would imagine that that makes the time roll by pretty fast when there's never really a, a lull or a down period, you know? Yeah, it does. Uh, my friends and I joke, uh, other friends who do similar work to mine, you know, a question we get asked a lot is what do you guys do in the off season? And, uh, <laughs> we kind of chuckle because, we don't really have an off season between, you know, out there creating and getting content in the field and then turning around and sitting down and editing it and, you know, making the projects actually happen. Um, there really is no off season for us here. Yeah. So kind of sticking with, uh, your introduction, what was the first hunt that you went on when you were old enough there? The first hunt I remember going on with my, my dad and my brother and stuff was a antelope hunt here in Montana. Um, we kind of had a tradition or my dad did of setting up an antelope camp on opening weekend every year. And they'd go out and spend a few days and get their antelope and come home. And so that was, that was my first memory is getting invited out, staying in the camper, getting to shoot 22s at pop cans during the day while the <laughs> guys were making sandwiches and, just hanging out, you know, bebopping around and and uh, just having the time of my life. But that's that's yeah, the first hunts I remember is those pronghorn hunts, laying out in the sage and and uh, yeah, figuring out what was going on. Yeah, isn't uh, and I, <clears throat> I would imagine that as you've gotten older, you know, from the time you spent that first, you know, kind of camp, uh, you know, with with your dad and, and relatives and whatnot. Isn't it kind of amazing how things come full circle and as you get older and if you have kids, like how you want them to experience that and you just kind of look back on, on how 
how many fond memories you really have of of that kind of time period and and those experiences and just wanting to be able to pass those along. Yeah, for sure. I couldn't agree more. I made it a goal on myself to to uh, get a camper a couple of years ago for that reason to be able to just get my kids out there more and and sort of help share those same similar experiences that what I had grown up and I haven't regretted, regretted it one second. You know, I always thought I couldn't afford it or it was something I didn't necessarily need. And so I continued to sort of figure out reasons of why I shouldn't. And then when I did, I just wish I wouldn't have waited so long. And, (laughs) and already we're making the memories. I mean, this spring, I remember my boy learned how to ride the bike with no training wheels um, out in front of our camper this year. And, uh, my other boys caught his biggest fish on one of our trips a couple of years ago. So it's it's happening, and, and it, it makes me super happy to be able to do that for him. Yeah, and those those memories outdoors, those experiences, the time spent, I mean, those are things that, that, you know, both you and your kids, I mean, they'll have for a lifetime, right? I mean, it's something that, you know, while they may not realize it in the time, you know, in the moment and right now, you know, when they get – you know, when they get to be parents or when they get, you know, into their, you know, more formidable years, you know, they'll look back on those and, and really realize how special that they, that they were. For sure. And I think it, you know, introducing kids to that and making them have a love for it, similar to myself or my father is, you know, also setting them up to want to protect it and create that opportunity for their kids. And so I think it's important to get them out there and make them fall in love with it. And they're going to want to protect it the same as we have. And, and we need that. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it's cool to see it come full circle. Yeah. So at what point did you realize uh, that you kind of, you know, wanted to make the outdoors and, and everything that kind of goes along with it, kind of your life's work and, and make that, you know, really a career? Well, I mean, really early on, I always knew I wanted to do something in the outdoor space. And through the years, that really changed. I mean, I believe, you know, one of the first things I wanted to do was be a taxidermist. (laughs) And um, so I really thought that was going to be what I wanted to do. And then I decided that I wanted to be a game warden. And then the more I you know, got to know more game wardens and talk to them. Um, I realized that they don't get a lot of time to hunt for themselves. And so I realized maybe I didn't want to be a game warden. And so then I took the guiding route and, uh, guiding is really what sort of set me to where I am today because, uh, I had the opportunity to be out there every day and experience this stuff. And I, started to realize that's before sportsman's channel was a thing outdoor channel was barely barely a thing there was no youtube there was no social media um there were some key magazines out there that i paid attention to um but i felt at that time like there just wasn't anybody really telling my story or showing showing hunting through kind of the lens that i would like to see it told through so that's sort of where I started to get the idea to film was just based on what was out there and available to us at the time and what I got to see every day. And, um, and so as things evolved, I, 
I wasn't guiding anymore. And then my love for uh, filming just continued to grow. The outfitter I worked for kind of sold and move away, moved away and it forced me to kind of shift gears. And I went after filming and, and even then there was no clear, you know, I wasn't filming going, this is going to be a TV show. I, I had no clue what I was really doing. I just wanted to film and show my buddies and, and, uh, and I enjoyed it. And after several years of doing it, all of a sudden I had this archive of, you know, 60 or 70 hunts on camera and, and some really cool stuff that I wanted to share with the world. And, and that's kind of where it all started really. So were you filming, uh, while you were guiding as well? Is that kind of when it started or did you, I guess maybe I, I, I wasn't quite uh, clear on that. So that's when you, uh, actually really started recording a lot of the hunts and whatnot. I tried. Yeah. I, uh, I realized what I was seeing when I was guiding was definitely worthy of filming because it was just amazing, you know, scenes and some cool stuff. And, but I also, so yeah, I did bought it. I bought a little camera that I would pack with me. It actually fit in the cargo pocket of my camo pants at the time. So it was really small, little flip out screen. And I tried to record, um, but I quickly realized that, uh, I couldn't effectively be a good guide and effectively film good. <laughs> so I kind of did both really half-assed for a short amount of time. <laughs> and then I realized I was getting paid to guide. So the camera took a bit of a back burner. But, you know, in that short amount of time, I became obsessed with trying to, to put the two together, you know, a, a good hunt and a good film. And so, yeah, um, after I... Uh, after the outfitter moved away and I was forced to sort of shift gears, that's when I thought, well, I'm not getting paid to guide anymore. I'm just doing my own hunting. So I'm going to film more and, and yeah, and it kind of grew from there. Yeah. Now I'd imagine, you know, since, or, you know, given where you're at now with, uh, with your career, um, with the, with the TV show and all that things that you probably have, um, you know, someone with you that's doing the filming now, as opposed to when you started and it was a lot of self-filming, you know, trying to, you know, capture, you know, what, what you thought people would want to see and the really cool sights and scenes and, and all that stuff. So how difficult was it, you know, when you were, you know, after you, you stopped guiding and you got into, you know, just filming hunts on your own, how difficult was that to, to be effective, uh, from a hunting standpoint, but then also still, you know, capture, uh, I guess the scenery, the images and kind of, you know, the story that was kind of unfolding in front of you, um, at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, it definitely took some figuring out to kind of find that equation or that balance of when to film and when to hunt. And a couple of things that I've told myself from the beginning and I stick to it is, um, you know, I'm never going to change the way I hunt because I'm filming. I'm a hunter first and and, um, I work hard for these opportunities and when I get them, I, I don't, I, I really hope that Ryan who films for me now is on them. And I put a lot of pressure on him because of that, because there's a lot of times we don't have time to communicate, but, um, that's one thing that I've put on myself is I'll never change the way I hunt because there's a camera there. And secondly, I'll never kill an animal to make an episode. I've, if that animal doesn't absolutely get me rattled to the point where I don't know 
what to do next, um, then it's, it's, it's not, you know, something I want to do. Um, so for me in the beginning, I mean, I wouldn't say it was hard because I loved it. I mean, it was just part of what I did. I mean, I, I always had people like my relatives or my friends like, man, I can't believe you're always packing all that extra camera gear, or <laughs> packing all that extra weight. And it, I didn't think of it like that because it was just part of the package for me. Right. You know, it was like taking a backpack, you know, that backpack was just going to have more in it. Um, and so I wouldn't say it was like hard. Um, I enjoyed it to the point where it never felt hard. Um, but it definitely took some figuring out of like, how do I set up the camera? When do I set up the camera? Because for about, you know, six years for sure, I did basically everything self-filming, a lot of my own hunts. Now, I would film my friends when they would hunt and stuff, but when I would hunt, I would self-film. And so kind of figured out that system and and in 2018 August of 18 I hired Ryan Kendall who works for me full-time now and um and that's been nice you know it's taken us a little bit of time to figure out how to work together but now I think we really have a nice uh system down and um yeah so it's um I think I kind of rambled there your answer but uh, no no that's all right. always evolving it really is yeah so early on there when you were trying to you know find that balance i mean did you do you have any any moments uh that you kind of look back on and and regret maybe trying to focus too much on you know getting the scene or, or capturing things on footage and potentially miss an opportunity at an animal that you you know were really trying to that you were really after yeah, I definitely felt like at times I was, I was, uh, putting, I had gotten to put too much emphasis on the filming to where hunting was sort of suffering because of it. I was becoming so obsessed with wanting to capture that, you know, beautiful first, first morning light and last morning or last light in the evenings that a lot of times I'd find myself just filming and not even, you know, spotting or even really doing anything in the hunting aspect when that was prime time right you know so i do think there was a bell curve a bit there where you know i i went too far for the cinematic side of things and got a little bit too far away from just the hunt itself and i think we've done a good job of reeling it back in and and keeping the hunt the focus and in the animal the focus. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that, that sometimes people maybe don't realize or don't quite understand is that, you know, people who are, are making these films, um, and that put a lot of time and effort into, you know, putting out the best possible product for, for what they want that, you know, people that are, are doing a lot of this self-filming or even, you know, people that have, uh, someone filming for them, like they think it's just one of those things that either they, or, you know, a friend picked up a camera you know, one season we're like, okay, we're just going to film it. And then everything comes together at once. I don't think people really, uh, understand and maybe appreciate, you know, the, the time and effort that goes into not only capturing, uh, you know, a hunt and everything that goes along with it, but, um, you know, doing it in such a way, uh, that the end result really kind of depicts, you know, what it was that you experienced when you were out there. For sure. 
yeah, I think, you know, it's one thing to go out and be, uh, to go out and hunt and be successful, but it's another to do that and at the same time tell a story that people want to listen to, you know. Um, there's a lot of people that are successful hunters, uh, really good hunters who don't film what they do. And, and that's fine. You know, we, I make a living on creating these stories at the same time. So, um, it, uh, yeah, it's, it, it brings a whole different element to the game because, you know, I think if all we ever did was try to go out and prove that we were successful in a hunt, and that's all the story was about, was look at me, the hunter, going out and getting this elk. And that's all that the story was about. I just don't think there's any longevity to that. I don't think it's a story that, you know, even hunters can watch over and over. They want they want more to it, I believe. And, and certainly people who are getting interested in hunting, they need to know that there's more value to hunting and the hunt than just look at me and this great big animal I shot, you know? So my focus is as a hunter. Yeah. I focus on trying to get the biggest animal I can personally. That's what drives me. But the story isn't about me trying to kill the biggest animal. The story is about so much more than that. And if it happens, great. Um, But if it doesn't, there's a whole lot more to the story than just that big elk, you know, or that big deer. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, really from like a, a hunting, let's say like a hunting maturity standpoint, it feels like, you know, the further kind of hunters or, you know, even anglers, you know, any type of outdoor recreation really that, you know, they, they get along in kind of that journey, the more the lead up, the more the story, the more the adventure um, kind of takes a priority and it becomes, you know, more important than let's say the actual, the journey becomes more important than the destination, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, so, I mean, how do you think, you know, we can kind of help change that perception because, you know, I feel like a lot of, you know, people who are maybe, uh, fringe hunters or people that are, you know, interested in getting into hunting or, you know, even those on the outside looking in, um, you know, maybe their first, um, exposure to to the outdoor world and and through you know tv um you know shows and stuff like that is you know more or less you know a lot of kind of the harvesting of the animals um you know there's there's not really that big build-up you know that um that i think is is far more important or it, it tells much more of the story than the you know five seconds that it takes for you to draw back you know anchor and you know possibly let an arrow fly or or, you know, put the crosshairs on something and squeeze the trigger. So how is it that you think it's possible to kind of kind of shift that that perception a little bit and and get more exposure on the buildup, on the lead and on the, the, the journey as opposed to the destination? Well, I think that's like the golden question that we're all <laughs> sort of searching for, for sure. But my my personal approach and something that I feel doesn't really fail on any aspect of how you look at it is just putting the animal and the landscapes first 
you know, like always making sure that the, the story is being told about the animal and the conservation behind that animal and the land and the story of what brought them there and, and what we have to do to continue to sort of see their existence in this world. I think as long as, as we're, you know, we honor the animal more than we honor the hunter itself. Um, I think that's a, a no lose scenario because everybody wants to see more wildlife and healthier, more diverse habitats. Everybody can agree on that. It doesn't matter if you hunt or don't hunt or rifle hunt or bow hunt or East coast or West coast. If uh, the animal is the most important thing that we're talking about, I just don't think you can fail. And that's why I've always supported conservation as much as I possibly can. And because I believe without it, you know, everything beneath it would crumble. You know, we wouldn't have a hunting industry if wildlife populations weren't flourishing. We wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have a career if we didn't have open places to go hunt these animals. So that, you know, that's my answer and that's my focus always is making sure the number one thing is the animal in the habitat. Yeah. And it almost sounds like with the the goal of, of your films and, and what you're trying to present is almost to the point where the hunter uh, is interchangeable, right? It doesn't matter, you know, if it's you, if it's me, um, you know, whoever it is that it's, it's not about that, right? It's, it's, it's about, you know, you could just, that's exactly right. Right. Yeah. And I want everybody who sees the films to be able to picture themselves in my shoes. I, I, I don't want to be, you know, representing something that they don't feel is unattainable. Um, so yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. And no, I think that's, that's a, a great way um, to, like you just said, honor the animal and honor the landscape. If, you know, the person watching, you know, can kind of transport themselves to, to your shoes and to your mindset when, when you're in that moment and when you're out there on the mountain in the back country, I mean, that's, I mean, that's what film is all about, right. Is, is allowing, you know, the viewer to, to feel like they're in the moment that they're, you know, in the, in the film themselves and not, you know, sitting, you know, in front of a computer or, or on the couch, you know, viewing this. For sure. And, and part of that is, you know, uh, not just through the messaging, but it, a lot of it is through the production as well. I mean, I put a a lot of focus into the natural audio. I shouldn't say I. We as a we as a production company put a lot of uh, effort into natural audio because that really is what helps suck you in more than anything. I mean, naturally, you need to have music tracks to kind of help move things along and. Right. And build some intensity where you need it to, or emotion where you need it. But really, you know, that natural audio and hearing what's going on really crisp and clean is what what really, you know, kind of gets to people's souls and, and kind of really sucks them in. And so I try to use as much of that as I can. I mean, I'll have whole segments of the show where there's not a not a song in it from one commercial break to the next. It's it's just the sounds of us being out there and, and it's easy to watch, excuse me. It's easy to listen to. And, 
I remember I had uh, one of the guys who I looked up to a lot when I first started more filmmaking and not uh, so much just creating a television show was uh, he explained to me uh, how much sound controls human emotion versus a picture and how much you need both of them to really get to people. And I remember he said, you know, if you think about it, you know, think about sitting in an airport that has a giant screen like the size of your wall and it's got the most beautiful imagery you know, say you're in the Denver airport and it's trying to show like Colorado tourism and you're getting just these incredible aerials and uh, shots of waterfalls and like the most beautiful imagery that you can imagine. Like it doesn't hold you if you can't hear anything. You'll look at it for a little while and be like, oh, that's cool. And 10 seconds later, you'll wander off and kind of look at something else, even though, I mean, it's beautiful. Um but on the contrary, he said, you can take your favorite music uh, CD or whatever, put headphones on and go into a closet and shut off the lights and you'll do everything from laugh to cry uh, <laughs> in an hour's time with the lights off just listening. And so he said, that's how much human emotion is pulled by sound. And I'll never forget that. And so I think that, you know, that's a big part of it too is is having the right messaging but also um you know creating something around that messaging that is even more you know sucks you in even more so. yeah you know that's the way uh that your friend described it to you i mean that he's spot on with that because as as you were kind of explaining that to me i was i was just thinking about the exact scenarios that you were laying out and yeah, music is one of those things that it has this ability to t to like uh, to transport you, right? To take you to a time like you know, if you're listening to you know a song from your childhood, like you're immediately transported back to when you're you're 13, right? You know, maybe you're at exactly. you know you're you're skiing with your friends, or you're at like a middle school dance, or you know, yeah. so, I mean, it's just all these things, and it's crazy how quickly. Yeah, you you kind of transform and it brings up all these memories. You know, music is such a nostalgic thing, you know, regardless of, of how old you are. There's always going to be um, certain memories associated with with certain, you know, whether it's songs or just, you know, genres in general. Uh, and then kind of, you know, touching on the point that you said with, you know, the natural sounds and, you know, kind of doing a good job of helping, you know, I, that really puts the, the viewer you know, right there in the moment. I mean, and there's not really a substitute for, you know, the snapping of a twig, you know, by an elk that's, you know, you know, creeping in or, or responding to your calls that has no idea that you're sitting, you know, 15, 20 yards away, right? You can't, you can't replicate that in any way. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, so it's fun. And like I said, it's always changing. So we're always trying to get better and technology's always getting better and so it's fun. Yeah. And, and you had mentioned something earlier about like the, you know, wanting to focus, uh, you know, the conservation side of things and, you know, the story behind the species and, you know, why they're able to flourish, you know, maybe in that particular part of the country and whatnot. So, Jason, where was it that, you know, you would say that 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 conservation mindset, you know, where did that come from or, you know, how early was that instilled in you? Uh, once again, I mean, really, really early. I mean, I, I can remember 
I was probably, I don't know, 10 years old, um, to my best knowledge. And I remember being at the Salt Palace in Salt Lake City at the National Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation banquet, you know, sitting there at a table watching all these people having a good time, spending money, supporting wildlife. And, uh, you know, I, it was just, it was cool to see how proud everybody was and just, the uh, you know, working towards one goal. And, um, and I, it even made a bit of more of an impact on me because I've always been into artwork as well. I like to draw and paint and stuff like that. And I was so, I guess, amped up in the moment that at the table, I drew an elk on my tablecloth thing <laughs> that was there. And the people, I don't know where they were from, but uh, the people we were sharing the table with bought it from me for $2. And, uh, and that's what I sparked it. Time. Like, oh yeah. I mean, I just was officially now a professional artist. <laughs> you know, so just like that overnight sensation so, <laughs> I mean, it just made an impression on me and so that's that's when conservation first really affected me was geez i mean a long time ago sitting in the salt palace and it's cool i still travel to the salt palace every year um it's not for the elk foundation anymore but it's for mule deer foundation and the western hunt expo down there and so it's cool i mean the things are still happening still working and still running those same circles yeah so with conservation uh you know obviously one of the reasons uh, that we're able to get together today and, and you know kind of really discuss a lot of this stuff is uh into high country is two percent certified so tell me about you know you know your how you learned about two percent you know what that experience looked like early on well being here in bozeman i was actually uh you know pretty aware of 2% from conservation right from its inception with, uh, you know, just knowing some of the guys that are on the board and, and some of the key players that was brought to my attention early on and, um, you know, just fascinated me. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a pretty simple um, decision for me to make on whether it's something I want to support or not. It's something I do like I said, it's part of my lifestyle anyway. I, I go to a lot of conservation projects and and uh, every year and donate time, donate uh, um, merchandise, different things to these. So, you know, why not do it in an organized fashion and uh, sort of keep track of it? And so um, talking with Jared, uh, love that guy, and it uh, I was stoked to get on board. And, yeah, it's, it's a really proud thing we're the first two percent certified uh outdoor television show ever and i think you know as two percent continues to grow that'll that'll mean you know more and more i mean it means something to me now but as time goes on it'll it'll continue to just kind of uh have its stamp on history i think so yeah and the fact you know you're i mean you're you're making and creating a TV show that's about hunting. So to be able to, you know, at the same token, you know, give back to to these animals and these species and these foundations that are, you know, supporting uh, in, in 
any way, shape and form possible. The animals that you're, you know, filming and creating this content and these shows about, I mean, that kind of just shows, you know, where you're at in terms of, you know, how you view the animal, how you view the landscape and all of these things. And that you're not just trying to make a show to make a show, you know? Correct. Yeah. No, that's a short, that's a short game that doesn't do anybody any good. So, uh, I would be happy to be an electrician if that was, <laughs> that was my, my game plan. But it's, uh, no, it, like you say, it, it doesn't make sense for me to not give back and, and sort of leave it better than we've found it. There's less and less people who really care about the environment and who truly understand it, um, as each day goes on. And the ones that do are going to have to work harder uh, to protect it. And, um, it's pretty easy, uh, for, uh, someone like myself to be passionate about it. I mean, I live in Bozeman. I live in, uh, I was born and raised here and I'm 42 years old now. And I, I see it happening before my eyes. I mean, I watch the edges of Bozeman grow as, you know, yeah. each year passes. I watch, you know, critical mule deer wintering habitat become subdivisions. I see the fields that are some of the best farmland in Montana for growing crops are now under foundations. And it's just, you can't get it back. And not every piece of ground is able to produce what every other piece of ground is, you know. And uh, it scares me. Montana's called the last best place on earth. And I, and I'm watching it get chipped away at and um if this is truly the last best place on earth and and it's happening here it's just it's kind of scary and that's really what a lot of project landlocked uh, my latest film is about is is just merely population growth um and where we're headed um with open lands and protecting them both private and public yeah so I kind of want to get into that a little bit, obviously, is, is some of the, the films uh, that you have made. So let's talk about, yeah, like you just said, your most recent one there, Project Landlock. So, you know, kind of walk me through that process. How did you decide that you wanted to, to make a film about that? You know, I mean, what did that, the, the entire, I guess, from beginning to end really look like kind of, you know, summed up, <laughs> summed up because I'm sure it's a very long process. Yeah, I won't bore you with all the details by any means, but, um, you know, I mean, living out west here, working with people like the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and Onyx Maps and TRCP and, I mean, all the organizations that are actively working to try to open up more places for us to hunt or recreate or just spread people out more, it's a hot topic out here, just open lands, period. Um, and figuring out how are we going to spread more people out? How are we going to create more access for these growing populations of people who are becoming interested in the outdoors? And, and so really where it started was through that, just a, just an interest in what's going on out here. But then, um, I, I typically draw an archery elk tag here in the state of Montana. It's, it's not guaranteed, but it's usually not too tough to get. Well, last year I didn't get it. And so it put me into a general, uh, general elk hunting unit 
which there's still, you know, a lot of good opportunity out there, but I just thought, man, what can I do on a year, just kind of a year that's off or that I feel is going to be different. And kind of ironically, seven years ago at the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation banquet here in Bozeman, I had purchased, my friend here in town had donated two hours of flight time and dinner for two in Big Sky, Montana in his helicopter. And uh, nobody was bidding on it. And like I said, this was seven years ago. So I thought, well, what the heck? I mean, I want to support RMEF. I want to support the donation and everything else. So I bought it and I got a screaming deal on it. And uh, I just never cashed in on it. And so fast forward seven years, I have this general elk tag. I'm talking to my buddy. He's like, dude, my bookkeeper really wants to get this trip off of our books. I've honored it for seven years and it's about time you either, you know, do it or I'm going to just say, you know, get it clean off my books, but we need to make it happen. And so the wheels were turning and I said, well, do we have to go to Big Sky? And he's like, man, you know, my helicopter doesn't care where it lands. You have this time. So I started looking at different BLM chunks uh, around the state of Montana because you have to land on uh, the Bureau of Land Management. You can't land on Forest Service or state or okay. or any other public property. So started looking at that and just thought, man, you know, kind of, I think I've got a, something I'd like to try here. And so the further I dug into what that takes and what that looks like and and uh, I just became more and more interested in the topic. And I realized that there's a lot of layers to this landlocked topic in the U.S., like where, how it was created, um, what are the solutions, um, you know, that we have moving forward to access these or not. Is it a good idea to access them or is it a good idea to leave them as sort of these sanctuaries? I mean, it just brought up like a lot of questions. And um, the further I dug into it, the more I realized there was really no clear answer on a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, I just, uh, with as hot a topic as it is around here right now and and public land and kind of the politics behind a lot of it, I just thought it was a good subject to bring to light. I mean, I like to tackle subjects that are kind of hard ones to tackle and bring right. light to them and really air them out. And this was one of them. And like I said, it's just a fascinating, it's the hardest story I've ever told. And, uh, I'm really proud of how the film turned out, um, in the end, but it was, uh, you know, a lot of opinions on it and, and we represented both sides. We have, you know, everybody from, um, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to even big, large-scale private landowners um, who are outfitters. I mean, we have a lot of interviews that we filmed to gather this information. And and then, you know, with Onyx Maps and TRCP forming this landlocked report, they started working on in 2018, really putting numbers to what we were facing out here, you know, they've done research 
in 22 states across the West, and they've discovered 16.43 million acres of public land that's inaccessible in just 22 states. Wow. And, you know, I don't want to spoil the film because there's a lot of uh, really uh, interesting uh, stats, I guess, on the film. But, like, to put it into, uh, you know, something that somebody can picture, like, that's the size of the state of West Virginia. Um, And... Or seven Yellowstone National Parks. You yeah, know, that's that's that, wow that we can't touch. And so you think about the value. You think about what we've done. The value of one Yellowstone National Park to this country. You know, right? And you think about there's seven of them sitting out there right now. And and that's part of it too. Like, I'm not saying that we should be able to get to all that land and tread all over it and do whatever we want. Like not at all but i do think that maybe there is an opportunity to create another national park as well as open up some of it you know to help spread people out i mean even the national parks are crowded you know for the first time ever in my life glacier park here in montana went to like a number system to go on the going to the sun highway because the amount of traffic was just getting out of hand and you know this isn't a problem that's going to get better with time unfortunately so that's really what this film is about i mean yeah we fly in we helicopter in we hunt elk with a bow we have an awesome hunt um but the film is about you know really everything else i've talked about yeah and that's (laughs) that's a that's a very you know cool story to hear you know, how it all kind of worked out and came together in the end. I mean, the fact that you had, you know, essentially this voucher sitting there, you know, from seven years ago uh, and, (laughs) you know, everything just fell into place and kind of presented you with this opportunity to, to tell the story and to hit on kind of this, you know, hot button or hot topic, you know, issue and really try to get all this information from both sides, like you mentioned, and, you know, put it all together in a film. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I feel like what, you know, conservation, you know, what, what these things are about is, is not just telling things from one side or the other, but trying to gather all this information to allow people to, to make their most informed opinion about whatever the topic is. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And and especially with this, I mean, geez, there, there is no answer. Nobody has a clear answer as to what we need to do or what what will surely work, you know? And, and so, but well, the one thing I will say is from hunters to hikers, to ranchers, to land managers, um, you know, to people in the hunting space, um, companies, everybody agrees that we can do better. And that's, what's exciting about this project is, uh, hopefully it will bring awareness to, where we're at but you know more than that hopefully it'll it'll make people aware that there's answers for people who are willing to listen and and want to create better solutions you know there there's systems in place through the rocky mountain elk foundation to work with with landowners to 
help make these land swaps happen, you know, to strengthen the boundaries of their ranch, but also give better access to the public. And we've recognized just across the people I've interviewed here in the state, numerous chunks that ranchers want to trade to get out of the middle of their property that will help public access because they're afraid when they pass, the next guy won't honor these easements that are buried in a basement that has just been passed on through generations. And that's what's scary. That's what's, you know, going to happen is out of, uh, you know, thousands of easements across the United States, there's, uh, I don't know the exact numbers like Joel does from TRCP, but there's only like 500 of them that are recognized and, and recorded. The rest of them are, and, and Project Landlocked, one of the ranchers talks about this, but like, you know, these are easements that have been worked out through generations of ranches and the Forest Service that are honored, but they're afraid, like I said, when they pass, the next guy isn't going to want people to go through their property. So I guess it's just exciting to me to see that there's a lot of people out there who want this, um, you know, want to help create something better. Yeah, And so that's exciting. And I feel like we have the right partners involved from OnX who can collect the data to and TRCP who have the people boots on the ground out there figuring this out to then, you know, the Elk Foundation that can come in and acquire these lands. They have the funding to act quickly when these sales happen. Um, you know, a lot of times the state and federal agencies, they don't have the money in place to go out and make these big land acquisitions as quickly as they need to happen. Right. Um, you know, and so it's nice to have the RMEF there because if we can recognize these vital areas, they can come in and, you know, they can create that funding that, you know, is either a holdover, you know, bridge funding until forest service can come in and purchase it from them, you know, or any number of ways. You know, they can work with ranchers to um, keep the ranchers' doors open as long as they allow public access. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ways that we can work together. And so I guess I just hope that this film helps bring awareness to that through, you know, hunters who maybe can help us identify these areas, help people like the Elk Foundation identify critical spots to look at as well as landowners who are looking for other solutions than just selling out to the, you know, highest bidder regardless of the outcome, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, what you touched on there is so many people um, kind of being on the same page or, or all recognizing that, that we as a, as a whole can do better. I mean, I feel like that that's, that's really the first step, right? Is, is getting everyone in agreement or an agreement that things can be done better. We, we all have, you know, uh, for the most part, the same interests or the same, you know, the same outcome that we would like to see. And, you know, if you can get that everyone to kind of together at the same table, I mean, it's, it's amazing what you can accomplish, um, when you have a lot of like-minded people that, that all want to, you know, want to see the same outcome or accomplish the same thing. You bet. Yeah. And, yeah, and obviously, you know, it's hunting 
organizations that vastly recognize this and and conserve these places, but it's everybody that benefits from it. You know, you don't have to hunt to be able to go walk into these places. Um, You know, I think, uh, you know, Elk Foundation over their 30 years has opened up over a million acres to people to recreate just one conservation organization. Yeah. Um, and that benefits everybody and, and every animal species, whether they're huntable or not. So, yeah. And that's, that's, yeah, you can get people to agree on the land and the wildlife, kind of bringing it full circle to, you know, what we talked on before. Yeah. And that's the beauty with a lot of these organizations or, you know, even, you know, people like you trying to do your part, Jason, is that, you know, the benefits are not just for, you know, you and I as hunters or as anglers, right? It's for, like you said, those backpackers, those bird watchers, um, you know, mountain biker, you know, whatever. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can recreate outdoor. And there's, you know, if you can get, like you said, those people spread out, uh, you know, more then you know, that's, that's obviously a good thing in, in that regard. You bet. Yeah, I mean, it creates a better experience for those individuals out there um, looking for, you know, some space, and it's better for the environment. You know, it's not as imposing. We're not trampling any one area or, you know, overhunting any one spot. Um, yeah, just the more we can spread people out, the better better it is for, for everything and everyone. Yeah. And it's... it's uh, you know, it really just comes down to a population thing. Like I said, it's not a problem that's going to get better with time. It's just, it's just everything is going to get busier as time goes on, yeah. not just open spaces. Yeah, I had a so. guest on a few weeks ago that we were, we were talking about. You know, probably the biggest um, thing that is, or the biggest kind of obstacle. Uh, out there or I don't know whatever word you would like to use but you know kind of facing conservation and facing the conservation world as a whole and that's probably at least when we had talked was like urban sprawl right and and how you touched on with you know like you said right there in Bozeman right how you just see you know just creeping out the outer edges just further and further year after year and I mean I don't know how you stop that um, and maybe it's people much smarter than I am that, that maybe have a better answer. But I mean, do you have, you know, thoughts on, on that or what you can do to, you know, cause I think it's inevitable, but you know, slowing it down to a rate that you don't have this, you know, vast impact in a very short period of time on maybe a specific herd or a specific species. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the work that we're doing helps opening up more, you know, as these lands pass on, as they change hands, you know, continuing to just stay engaged, you know, acquire those lands where we can support conservation organizations that have the power to acquire those lands. Um, You know, organizations like the Elk Foundation that get out there and really make a difference um, when it comes to these big acquisitions um that's important and you know more of like what we touched on in the film um hopefully everybody listening to this will get a chance to watch but you know i personally think one way that we could slow the process or help things out is 
put more value into the rancher and farmer's way of life than we do the property that they operate on. You know, if we can make sure that they're taken care of and if we can make sure that there's incentive for their kids to want to take it over because there's far greater value in you know keeping those cattle on the land or farming that land than there is selling it i think that's important and i think that'll come with a cost you know i mean you can't blame these people for you know for going that route i mean if you can if you're like oh i can make 30 million dollars tomorrow or i can invest my entire life here and just maybe maybe make it work in the end i mean it's it's a it's you know you can't blame those people for right doing I mean, what they do or selling their property so i think as a society if we just make sure to make sure those people have a place and that there's far greater value in their work and their way of life than there is selling. I think that's important, you know? And I, like I said, it'll come with some costs. Like if we're not willing to pay more for a pound of beef or, you know, a salad or some of this stuff that's, that's raised here on our home soil, then, then that won't work. But so, yeah, it's going to take people smarter than me to figure out how to get there. But I do think that that's important. I mean, these a lot of these ranchers are feeling a bit like, you know, the vast majority of societies kind of turning their back on them and putting more restrictions on them and making it harder for them to make a living. And, and uh, we need them. You know, they feed the, the people and they feed the wildlife of this nation, really, the, you know, the vast majority and uh, and yeah. like what I see here in Bozeman, you know, these people are going away one by one. And these ranches that I, you know, have grown up around are, are turning into subdivisions. And that's just a you can't come back from that. There is no coming back from that. It's it's so I think that's important. And somehow we got to just make sure that we support the farmers and ranchers and we stand behind them and we, we just honor their way of life as best we can. And I don't know how we get there, but that's, I, I think that's important. Otherwise what's to, what's to stop, you know, every one of them through time from just selling out to pressure and the, the growing populations around them, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, <laughs> you bring up a, a really, a, a really good point there um, with supporting, you know, that lifestyle and, and making sure that they know how important what they're doing is because like you said, with restrictions and it making, you know, a lot of these ranchers have been, you know, ranches have been in these families for, you know, generations. And it's, you know, it, it seems like as time goes on, it's, it's much harder for them to survive and to thrive. So, you know, you, they, you know, probably feel like they get to that point and, you know, they, they get offered a, you know, a large sum of money for their land and, you know, they are almost kind of at the end of their rope, right? Like they just feel at that point defeated, right? That they just feel like they, they don't, like no one has their back, I guess. And yeah, 
Right. And so to, yeah, to show that support, to let them know how important it is. I mean, I think that that's, that's absolutely a great first step and a great piece of advice for, for anyone listening. For sure. I mean, it, and, and I think honestly, you know, a lot of people get upset at ranchers leasing their property to hunters or say, uh, you know, leasing to outfitters and, it, that's also sort of a hot topic. You know, there's people that believe that they don't, you know, they shouldn't be able to sell the wildlife, that they're held in a public trust and yada, yada. That's a very kind of deep subject. But like, um, you know, it with the cattle markets going down and with their lifestyle being harder to maintain, more and more of these ranchers are going towards outfitting or leasing because they have to, to keep their doors open. You know, they don't want more people on their property if they don't have to have it. Or, or, you know, a lot of these guys would love to open their doors open to public access, but they're sort of forced to do what they have to do to keep the doors open. And, and a lot of them have turned to outfitting or leasing to help supplement the ranch to keep their doors open. So you know, I do feel like that with with a percentage of, you know, land, if they weren't having to worry so much about just paying the bills to, to you know, get to the next month, I think there would be more ranchers that would be willing to open their doors to public access. Um, yeah, because that's uh, certainly an alternative you know, to having to sell outright. You know, it's a way to, like you said, supplement exactly. and not have to, you know, take that entire plunge into, you know, giving up your, you know, family's, you know, life work. Um, so, no, yeah, that's certainly um, something or I can certainly see why people have, have started to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, Jason, kind of before we let you go here. Um, I know we've, we've kind of been talking for, for almost an hour here, but this is, this is, I've, I've really enjoyed this. Um, where can, yeah, where can people find, um, you know, into high country and some of these different conservation films, uh, that you've put together as well? Yeah. So, um, into high country comes on every Monday night on the sportsman's channel at nine thirty Eastern time. That's kind of our anchor slot. Uh, that's typically when you can catch the new episodes. And then we'll come on additionally four more times throughout the week. I don't know offhand those air times. Um, but if you miss Monday, you can catch every episode four more times throughout the week if you search it. Um, and then, you know, I'm pretty active on Instagram at Jason Matzinger Official. Uh, we kind of are always updating uh, what we're doing and up to through the stories and posts on there. And... Uh, the conservation films, um, they can all be found on YouTube, uh, like Project Elk is on the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation's page. Uh, Circle of Life is on the Wild Sheep Foundation's YouTube page, and Project Mule Deer is on the Mule Deer Foundation's YouTube page. Um, I also have them all shared on my personal YouTube page, which is another place to find pretty much everything I've done. Um, so basically the way it works is new episodes come on TV. Then from there they go to the, my outdoor TV 
and they'll, that's the first place they'll show up online for about six months. So if you uh, subscribe to My Outdoor TV or have that app, you'll get them there first. And then after about six months, I'll put them on my YouTube channel. And so if you're patient, you can catch them on my YouTube. But uh, if not, Sportsman and My Outdoor TV are the the places to catch the show. And then, yeah, um, the films are sort of with the corresponding conservation organizations. Uh, Project Landlocked, we're going to launch that online September 1st. And that's going to come out through Onyx and Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So if you follow any of them or uh, or a member, you'll be getting getting it sent to you on September 1st. Otherwise, you can find it at Onyx Maps. Awesome. Now, do you have any projects that you can kind of tell me about or you know ideas of of like kind of the next you know big conservation film that you're looking to put out or you're looking to kind of get involved with any ideas uh yeah so i've been uh, i've had one in the works for several years now um that's a film titled selective that is about the history of trophy hunting it's going to be a film i'm working on with the wild sheep foundation um So we take a detailed look into where trophy hunting started, where it kind of started to get this, you know, black eye or why, why it started to lose its luster and why, you know, kind of prove to people why it's still a beautiful thing and should be celebrated. And, um, so that's kind of the next conservation film to be coming out. It's had its complications where the, the hunt that's going to be surrounding that film is a, archery doll sheep hunt from the Northwest Territories that I was supposed to go on two years ago, but have not been able to get into Canada since. So um, this film was supposed to come out two years ago, Um, uh, but we're hopeful that we'll get back up there and finish the filming in July and hopefully have a pretty quick turnaround on it. But uh I'm excited about that one. Like I said, I like tackling those sort of tough to talk about issues and, and trophy hunting is certainly one of them. So, um, yeah, no, that'll be a, yeah. a great, a great film. I mean, because like you just said, that's a, that's a, a topic that a lot of people have their opinions on. So, and especially to use, yeah. you know, doll sheep kind of surrounding it, um, you know, something that's such a, a coveted animal right to 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 hunt and to pursue and a very difficult animal uh at that so no that i i'm looking forward to to when that's able to kind of fully come together there heck yeah me too it's fun topic as well and a lot of a lot of good people involved and so but that's yeah that's uh that's the next big one that we have now and i'm sure something else will come up or just kind of uh letting the dust settle from landlocked and We'll see what spark kind of ignites the next one. So, yeah. Well, Jason, thank you so much for taking some time, man. I really enjoyed, you know, hearing more about, you know, into high country, you know, a lot of the, the, the films that you have worked on from the conservation side of things, you know, what you think we can help uh, or how you think we can help, um, you know, in conservation in general. And, you know, it's, it's been really enjoyable, man. Thank you so much for your time. Likewise, I appreciate the invite and glad we were able to put it together. Yeah. 
Well, hey, good luck the rest of this fall, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Yeah, thanks, man. Likewise. Good luck, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care, Jason. All right. You too. Bye. All right. Well, thanks again to Jason for taking some time to join me today. Uh, If you haven't already, please be sure to check out his latest film, Project Landlocked. I would like to thank the partners of the podcast, Stone Glacier and Wild Rivers Coffee, as well as Go Hunt. Also, I'd like to thank 2% for Conservation. And if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And there you can see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to follow 2% on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation-driven content. So you'll definitely enjoy those uplifting posts in your feed. Uh, So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, As hunting season kicks off out here, uh, stay safe out there. And remember that conservation starts with you.